Welcome to Sky Women. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Moyers, a wife, mom, and board-certified OB-GYN. This is a place to educate, empower, and inspire. Join us each week as we share the power of women's stories. Real women, real stories, real inspiration. Put on your stretchy pants. Let's get going. Hello, Sky community. Welcome back to another episode of Sky Women. I'm so excited that you joined me today. I know I say that every week, but you know, it's just a pleasure to be in your ears and the fact that you keep showing up week after week. Today, we have a special guest with us, one of my favorite um, primary care doctors, Dr. Kathy Supavong. She's a board-certified family medicine doctor and sports medicine physician. She was born and raised in Dallas, and she practices in Fort Worth at One to One MD, even though she is a DO. Welcome, Kathy. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. Absolutely. Well, and one of the biggest reasons I wanted you to come on is because you focus so much on preventative health and you have a different practice model. So can you kind of enlighten everyone on that? Yes. So uh, my practice model is uh, a membership model. So a lot of people will refer to it as direct primary care. Sometimes sometimes the term concierge medicine is thrown out there, Um, but how it differs from, say, a traditional family practice um, is that our patients pay us a membership fee. Um, And with that membership fee, it it takes me out of the um, insurance model. So I'm not paid based on the amount of patients that I see. I really am paid directly from my patients to make sure that they're getting everything that they need healthcare wise. Mm -hmm. So with that, I can spend as much time as I want. And so we delve into just naturally, we delve into a lot of the preventative medicine um, aspects that come with taking care of someone. So I've I've really enjoyed doing this and I've switched to it about four years now, coming up on four years. So you were in a you were in a traditional insurance model, right? Yes. A, a traditional employed position insurance model. And you've transitioned in the last four years to this direct primary care. And yes. so what do you think the difference is in the time that you spend with your patients? Like now your average patient visit is how many minutes? Oh, it depends on what the patients need, right? So I'm able to actually talk to them and ask them like, hey, what do you want me as your physician to do for your health? Like, what are the main things that you're you're focused on and, and what would you like to do? So some patients, like for example, last week I had a, a new patient come in and I spent three hours with her at that initial visit. That doesn't wow. happen with everyone, <laughs> but yeah. she needed it. Um, and was, was pleasantly surprised that, um, the doctor actually spent that time to delve into, you know, all the things that she wasn't even aware about, um, as far as the, the past trauma that could have been, uh, affecting her, um, manifesting symptoms in her physical body. And so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's been a joy and a privilege to be able to actually, you know, go through that health journey with someone and actually in the end, most of the time, see them improve. So, right. Right. And you do a lot of things via phone and telehealth, right? Like not everything is in person. It doesn't have to be three hours in the office. (laughs) No, yes, no. And that's rare. Okay. So I don't want to scare people off. Like it's not always three hours, but, um, physicals, you know, in the past I used to have like 30, 45 minute blocks for physicals. And now it's anywhere between 90 minutes to, um, 120. So it's, it's great. 
So I also love that whenever they come into the office, they actually get to come into your office. So your office space has an exam table. And if you're just talking, you know, for sure, they're going to be in there. And so it's it's the more of this open concept like we used to have with physicians, right? Where they're invited into your space. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's lovely. We want to talk about specifically... Um, women's health and preventative care for women's health, and specifically uh, how we can improve and be aware of cardiovascular risk in women. Because as you and I were discussing before, this is a big misnomer. If you ask women, what's the number one killer of women in the United States? Most of them are not going to say cardiovascular disease. Yeah, no, no. Um, A lot of people really do think that uh, for women in particular, you know, breast cancer, that that's the main thing um, that a lot of people are worried about. But um, let me kind of break it down. So in the middle age, which is essentially ages 40 to 65, right? I will say that cancer is still the, the biggest killer. But above that, it by far it's cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative disease, so Alzheimer's. Um, so those are the things that we really need to focus on now because the changes that you can make now in cardiovascular disease, for the most part, it is 90% of it can be prevented through like modifiable risk factors, right? Knowing what your risk factors are. Let's um, slow that down. Let's oh, repeat sorry. that one more time. Yes. 90% of risk factors yes. so are preventable for cardiovascular disease. So heart attacks, strokes are the big ones that, that people worry about as they get older, right? And you hear about it all the time. So, um, you know, when do women typically have heart attacks and strokes if they're going to have it? Um, it's 60 plus, right? 70 plus. Um, But cardiovascular disease is tricky because there's no symptoms necessarily going on um, to kind of alert someone that that's going on, right? So, um, like, hey, you need to make changes now because in 10, 15 years, this is going to be a big problem. Yeah. You don't have those clues. Yeah. Yeah. So, the earlier that people are aware of those, risk factors, which we'll talk about those, um, the more that they can make, make changes and make sure that, you know, do everything that they can to try to prevent things from happening when they're older. So I, 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 um, well, let's, I guess go into those risk factors. Yeah. Okay. So number one is, um, blood pressure control right? So uncontrolled blood pressure can lead to vascular damage um, and therefore plaque buildup in your vasculature. So that's a big one. So knowing what your blood pressure is, and there's a lot of things that women go through um, that increase uh, their um, exposure to these things. So, you know, um, preeclampsia, right, is a big one that affects women throughout pregnancy. Um, And I always say uh, once postpartum, always postpartum, right? Because if you've had preeclampsia, your lifetime risk of having hypertension later is increased. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So so what is ideal? What are we, what are we looking for? So ideal blood pressure, less than 130 over 80. 
on a regular basis, right? So obviously if you exercise, it's going to go up transiently. That's just the normal physiologic response that happens. Um, but then afterwards, resting blood pressure, you really want to, to be below 130 over 80. Some would argue even less than that, less than 120 over 80. Um, and again, it depends on, uh, you know, family history, what their risk factors are. Um, right. So so those would be kind of the things to aim at, uh, as far as um, the numbers go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, blood pressure. Tobacco, right? So these are the things that we know, you know, smoking uh, definitely led to an increased risk of um, heart disease in both men and women, um, you know, in the past and still does. And that's why there's been such a major emphasis as far as smoking cessation. There's warnings on like cigarette boxes and everything now. Um, so that's a risk factor. Metabolic For so disease. many things, so many things. Like if you yes. stop smoking, that's like the number one thing you could do to improve yeah. your health today yeah. is totally. don't smoke. Yes. Totally. Okay. Um, metabolic disease. So I do think that um, diabetes uh, is 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 be is worsening um, nowadays compared to in the past. So um, a lot of metabolic disease um, really does come down to what we put in our bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, exercise is important for vascular health. So if someone is more, um, like doesn't move around a lot or doesn't incorporate exercise into their daily routine, um, that can definitely make their metabolic health worse. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then Cholesterol. So there are atherogenic, uh, which is plaque forming cholesterol particles, right? That we have to be aware of. So you hear about it all the time. You'll hear, you know, this person was the epitome of health, ate healthy, exercised all the time, yeah. and yet they still had an event. Um, yeah. and, and sometimes, unfortunately, that first event is death, right? So like, that's the symptom. Like we learned about it in medical school. Right. Uh, Sometimes one of the first symptoms of a heart attack, unfortunately, is death. So all of those things you want to be aware of. So, um, so women really do need to look and see what their risk factors are, be aware of them, make changes now in order to guarantee that 20, 30 years down the line, like we don't have any events. Yeah. So let's talk about that because at my well woman exams or annual exams with my patients, I am getting their lipid panel. Um, but a lot of times I'm calling you <laughs> with yes. the results, you know, and explain, explain this to me again. And so you guys are the experts. And so if they're wildly abnormal, I'm sending them your direction. Um, but, you know, you mentioned that we're looking at not only their total cholesterol, but can you kind of explain that lipid panel to everyone a little bit? Yeah. So on the basic lipid panel, you'll typically see total cholesterol, LDL, HDL, and triglycerides. Those are the main ones. Um, and, and in the past, or a lot of doctors will use the term good and bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, that there's more behind that story. So HDL, which is typically in the past has been known as, as, as good cholesterol. And I, I used to say it too. I used to say Mm -hmm. HDL, we want this to be higher because it's your good cholesterol. But honestly, looking at the studies, uh, there has not been, um, like we've tried it 
we as the medical society has have tried to raise people's HDL and that has not been associated when that happened, that hasn't been associated with an, a um, benefit as far as decrease in cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, right? So that actually mm-hmm. hasn't improved outcomes at all if you raise it. Okay. So what I think we really need to focus on is, okay, um, what is that overall LDL number? And actually more specifically, what is the number of atherogenic particles? So what I like to check in a lot of people is the ApoB particle. And that actually encompasses LDL um, and triglycerides, which can contribute to atherogenesis. Okay. And it's important to check that ApoB number because um sometimes there will be a discordance, meaning someone's LDL could look completely normal, but yet their ApoB, when you check it, can be elevated, okay? So um, ApoB or apolipoprotein B is not checked routinely by a lot of physicians, although I think that is changing because of the evidence that is coming out. Okay. Okay. Um, So you get numbers, you check it, and... and, um, obviously it's not just all about the numbers, right? Right. So we want to look at family history. Um, there are some other things that, uh, we look in the blood too. So if, if someone comes to me and I see in their family history, their dad had a heart attack at 50 or had stents placed, um, their uncle also, um, or aunt, um, had, um, strokes, in their 60s or 70s, right? So we want to kind of see, is there something in their genetics that could be putting them also at a higher risk? Um, so LP little a or lipoprotein A is another uh, genetic marker that, uh, that doctors can check that where if it is elevated, uh, that just automatically puts them at that higher uh, risk category. So people with the elevated LP little a will tend to have this kind of early family history of heart disease, um, or events in their family. So checking all those things are important. Um, and then assessing your risk, right? So the other thing that I want to stress to people is heart attacks and strokes don't happen overnight. It right. takes years for these things to develop into the point that it can actually cause an event. And I'm talking 20 to 40 years. Right. So um, like saving up for your retirement, right? <laughs> the sooner You're saving you up for start, your retirement health. <laughs> yes, yes. The sooner that you start and, and treat these modifiable risk factors, the more impact that you can have later on um, as far as, as what, what happens. So you can wait until you're 60 or 70, which honestly, I tell my patients all the time, like, if you're coming to me now, this is when we have to be most aggressive. If we see that your numbers, your cholesterol particle numbers are elevated, or, you know, if you've already have evidence of a plaque, either in your carotids or your heart. So, Mm -hmm. um, so speaking of that, there are imaging things that you can do to assess your risk, right? So the two main places that we look are the carotids, because if you have plaque there, that increases your risk for stroke. Um, and then in your actual heart arteries, your coronary arteries. So, um, the scan that I like for the carotids is called the CIMT, Mm -hmm. which stands for carotid intima media thickness test. 
Okay. Um, and the reason why I like that over just a plain Doppler carotid ultrasound is it actually goes into detail um, to see uh, the size of the plaque and it can actually tell you whether it's soft plaque or hard plaque. So soft plaque means that it's been there or typically so like um, associates with plaque being there for five years or less, right? So it's soft, it's still forming, maybe there's still new active damage and inflammation going on. Um, calcified plaque takes more time. So um, if it's been there for um, the five plus years, a lot of times you'll see the change from that soft plaque into uh, calcified plaque. So um, getting that would be important to kind of see, you know, say someone came into me or came to me um, and they were in their fifties and we did that scan. Um, and it shows that they already have some, some plaque in their neck. You better believe I'm going to be very aggressive at, um, making sure they are, their blood pressure is controlled, making sure their blood sugar is controlled, making sure their cholesterol, um, particle numbers are controlled as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then making sure obviously they're not smoking. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So I hear you saying, you know, there, this is a lot of good information, but I, I hear you saying that in regards to, you know, this large piece that we have control over in terms of our cardiovascular health. I mean, there's plenty of unknowns in this world, right? But if we, <laughs> if we are fully aware that, yes. you know, the things that we don't see, the things on the yes. inside, right. We can modify by yeah. avoiding smoking, by eating whole foods, you know, watching our diet and controlling our insulin and sugar levels, um, exercising, moving our body, um, and blood pressure control. I mean, the, those are pr- pretty manageable in my opinion. They are, they are. And, and I think a lot of people do accept and understand, um, the diet and exercise and the no smoking point, right? Mm -hmm. That is by far, everyone's like, yes, I know that. Um, the, the piece that I see that is missed, particularly in women is the, this cholesterol issue. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know, I don't know the reason why, um, you know, their cardiovascular disease isn't a man's disease. Right. right? But that um, is how it's kind of been portrayed to society. So I think, yes, that, yes we often yes. do overlook. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know if, you know, in the, in the past, I don't think it was too long ago. So statins, which is one of the main medications that's used to control cholesterol. Um, it used to be category X in women in pregnancy. Mm. And just recently within the last year, it's no longer anymore. And, and part of the reason I think that was, is just, there wasn't a lot of studies, women in, in studies. Um, there's just not as many women enrolled in the studies that are, are ongoing for, um, for, uh, evidence-based medicine essentially. So, um, I think that's changing. Um, so now there's actually a study going on right now that's actually looking at statin use in, as far as if it can help um, decrease um, adverse outcomes with women who are higher risk for preeclampsia. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So again, knowing your risk, right? So that's the key part here is the more you know. <laughs> <laughs> the more you know. And recognizing women, if you've had gestational diabetes, yes. if you've had preeclampsia or eclampsia, 
or gestational hypertension, you are at increased lifetime risk for having diabetes and hypertension. So these are things that once postpartum, always postpartum, they are going to follow you. And it's something that you absolutely need to be aware of to help reduce your risk. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. So, um, so yes. So I would say for younger women, right. I know we're like in, in the, in, well, I younger, so all women need to know their risk. Yes. But in particular, um, women who are going through, you know, this phase where they're raising their kids and, you know, taking care of everybody except themselves. Right. Cause a lot of yes. us moms will do that. Yes. Yeah. So um, many times I see women who haven't been to the doctor in six, five, six, seven years since yeah. they delivered their last baby, they've just been busy and they haven't made themselves a priority. Yeah. So again, the, the more that, you know, early on, the more that you can affect things later on. So, um, so when women go to the doctor, right. Ask for those things, like, you know, ask for, if your doctor normally doesn't check ApoB, ask them for that. Right. Um, so just be aware of those things and then treat earlier. If, especially you have that family history or, ask for these other tests that are available. So I talked about the carotid scan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other scan is, is a, a heart scan. So there's a couple of different heart scans. So the most basic one or most um, affordable one is called the coronary artery calcium test. Mm-hmm. And that is a low dose CT scan of your heart. It looks to see if there's any calcification in your heart arteries at the time that you do the test. Um, so I will say that the, caveat to this is if you do it too early so let's say there's a 40 year old woman that you know has a significant family history in her um or let's say she has high cholesterol let's say her ldl is like 180 um and she has a family history of like remote heart disease where mm-hmm. um her uh, grandparents had heart attacks or strokes in their 70s right mm-hmm. if you do this heart scan too early sometimes um, it can give you a false negative, right? Because again, Mm -hmm. it takes time for um, plaque to calcify. So if she gets a calcium score of zero, Mm -hmm. um, but yet she, we miss that she actually has some soft plaque, um, then we might not be as aggressive at treating her risk factors, specifically the cholesterol particle number um, as aggressively. Okay. Okay. So, um, I I think that the calcium test is a a good test, but you have to be aware of context. So if you, let's say a 60 year old woman comes in and, and same kind of background history, same labs, if she gets a calcium score of zero, it would actually mean more, right? So she's had now 60 years. Right. Um, and, and with her score of zero, you're like, okay, maybe we can still watch her and kind of see she's, she's had 60 years now. There's no evidence of, of calcification in her arteries. So again, you have to kind of take every person on a case by case basis. So, right. Um, so that, that is the, as one test in the younger, um, women, the, the 40 year old, what we might consider in her is a CT angiogram of the heart. Um, that will just give us more detail and, and it looks to see if there are, um, 
uh, any areas where there's soft plaque too. So, um, so those are a couple of the tests that you can do to assess risk. Okay, great. So if we are thinking about our cardiovascular risk as women enter menopause mm-hmm. um, and those perimenopausal years where hormones are all over the place, um, I want to talk a little bit about that because, you know, they just released um, the North American Menopause Society released a physician statement on hormone therapy and looking at observational data and even re analyzing some of the older studies like the WHI that got everybody up in uproar and you know we took everybody off their hormone replacement therapy mm-hmm. um they reassessed and they suggest that healthy women who are within 10 years of menopause transition and who have bothersome menopause symptoms the benefits of hormone therapy outweigh the risk with fewer cardiovascular um, events in younger versus older women so mm-hmm. You know, we take that to say, oh, okay, well, well, then we need to, if you're having symptoms, we need to start therapy sooner versus later, because if we're looking at now you have symptoms in your 60s and we're just seeking treatment, we have already increased risk because of just age alone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that treating, so symptoms of menopause, right? Hot flashes trouble sleeping, mood stuff. Um, If you're not sleeping, that can negatively impact your cardiovascular health. Yeah, correct. Overall health. And if your hot flashes are waking you up, if your night sweats are waking you up, like it's interrupting your sleep, it affects everything. Yeah. And and what boggles my mind is that only about 30% of women actually seek treatment for their vasomotor symptoms from menopause only 30 percent of women yeah and many of them are getting poor treatment (laughs) I know I know so really frustrating for sure for sure and so I I think the women's health initiative probably did a lot of disservice to women in general as Mm -hmm. far as um scaring them away from uh estrogen replacement or hormone replacement therapy um, when they go into menopause. And so same with that. So estrogen, um, the reason why we see kind of about a decade shift as far as when women will have events and men have events is estrogen actually has a protective effect on cardiovascular health. Um, So when a woman goes through menopause, cardiovascular disease can happen faster or it is accelerated. So um, all the more reason to, you know, if women are having symptoms, uh, get on hormone replacement um, Mm -hmm. if, if, or at least investigate it and see Mm -hmm. if it would help with their symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not saying to do hormone replacement for um, like to prevent heart attack and stroke. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying, Hormone replacement can improve a person's quality of life, help improve their sleep if they're having any sleep disturbance. Mm-hmm. Um, and in turn, that can also improve uh, cardiovascular health outcomes in the future. Right. This is the message <laughs> that I want to shout from the, the mountaintops. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that and uh, vaginal estrogen is safe for everyone. You can use it until you die. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and, and I, you know, um, 
there's, there's a whole bunch of different formulations out there and you really have to, as far as hormone replacement. So you really have to assess what the person's risk factors are, what would be the best one for them. But, um, women should not have to suffer. (laughs) Agree. Agree. And if men were going through menopause, like the, I mean, believe me, I mean, they did, they had Viagra years before we had anything for sexual dysfunction. So yeah. Okay. We digress though. Um, yeah. So I think, I would love to hear what your biggest recommendations are for your patients. I believe that diet, and I'm not saying that in a form of like a fad diet, a diet in terms of, you know, like we use that word whenever we're in the hospital, you know, (laughs) what kind of diet would you like the patient to have? Um, What we consume is a huge part of our overall health. Um, And I believe people want to eat better, but don't necessarily know how to eat better. So I always say, more plants, more whole foods. If it crinkles in a bag, you probably don't need it. <laughs> um, but what is your recommendation in terms of movement? Yeah, movement. Okay, so move like so. It, it really depends on where the person is, right? Yeah. So if they are completely, they haven't done any exercise um, in in a while. I would say um, just like walking. It's it's getting out there. And if you're starting from zero, do something mm-hmm. and then, and then progressively increasing from there. Um, another thing that is important as we age, right. Is, um, is your body, your body breaks down as you get older, just like a car would, right. The yeah. longer that you have that car, you have to maintain it. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's a combo of cardio and, um, uh, very important is strength training. So doing something to help build muscle mass, because as you get older, that muscle mass is going to decrease. And especially if you have some sort of event that happens, let's say you injure yourself, um, and, and you can't walk for a little bit. You're like, so for example, my mother-in-law, she was over at my house helping me take care of the the baby. Um, and she slipped on my dog's slobber and broke her kneecap. Oh no. (laughs) So she was in a, um, a brace, uh, where she couldn't bend her knee at all for about a month. That's it. A month. And when you, when she, took this brace off, the amount of atrophy or wasting of that muscle was mm-hmm. significant. I mean, right. it was, which affects balance, which affects her mobility overall. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. huge. That's huge. Yeah. And in addition to just muscle strength and balance, um, you know, our um, bone loss in that initial postpartum or postpartum postmenopausal period is huge, right? Yes. And yes. so weight bearing exercises, strength training, as you're alluding to, um, definitely helps with that as well. Yes. So, mm-hmm. Yes. So ideally, you know, you would practice um, strength training and I'm not talking about like going out there and lifting like 200 pound deadlift or anything like that. It's like just what I recommend to people is maybe starting out with body weight exercises, right? You can do squats and push-ups. You can do squats and push-ups, um, and then slowly working up from there. So doing at least try to do three days a week, um, where you're doing some sort of strength training exercise. Um, and then cardio, you want to actually be doing about two hours a week, (laughs) ideally again, work up to that, right? So you want to be doing what we call zone two training where, um, your heart rate is at that kind of middle zone. So, um, 
I like to tell people zone two is when you are starting to have trouble holding a conversation, right? Like you, okay. so you can talk, but you're having to take frequent breaths, trying to get like, so that's kind of where you want to be for, um, two hours a week. So I so like 120 tell, minutes, 120 minutes. So if you want to break it up for 40 minutes, three times a week, or if you want to do 60 minutes twice a week, um, aim for that, aim for that. So, um, but if again, you're starting from nowhere, start somewhere, some kind of movement. I always tell people move for joy, right? So like if it's swimming that you love and makes you feel buoyant and and youthful, do that, right? If it's jumping on a trampoline, get yourself a little individual trampoline and jump, have a dance party in your living room. Like I don't care as long as you're moving your body and getting that heart rate up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, going back to the strength training piece, right? So we really want to make sure that um, we are training in the way that kind of preps us for things in the future, right? Mm -hmm. So what do I mean by that? So um, as we get older, we are going to be picking up potentially grandbabies, right? So you want to make sure that you can lift that 20, 30 pound baby um, that's going to be moving around in the correct way so that you don't throw out your back. Right. 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 We need Um, those core muscles. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So practicing that motion on a regular basis can prep you for making sure you don't injure yourself when you actually do get to that stage in life. Mm -hmm. So um, grip strength is also very important. Mm -hmm. Right. So really kind of, um, working on, you know, and that's where the, the strength training comes in hand. When you lift up weights, dumbbells, kettlebells, whatever, Mm -hmm. you're actually, um, working on grip strength too, as well as a whole bunch of other things, um, as far as like core musculature and all that. So, um, translating that to, uh, real life situations, carrying groceries, um, if you trip and fall, let's say you're walking down the stairs, you want to make sure your grip strength is strong enough um, to try to catch yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So all of those things are important um, that we need to pay attention to. Again, put in the effort now, or at least be aware of it now and work at it now so that when you are 65 and up, um, it's not as hard. Yeah. So. So we're not going to take our bodies for granted. That's what I'm taking away from this. Don't take your bodies for granted. Live intentionally. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and be aware of your cardiovascular risk. And if, if nobody's talking to you about this and you're in your forties, um, I, I would be asking, you need to be asking, and I'm going to start incorporating the APOB into my, um, annual exam, because I think that it makes a big difference. It does. It does. Mm-hmm. And and the studies are showing that ApoB actually does correlate more um, as far as um, cardiovascular disease than LDL does because it incorporates all those what we call atherogenic cholesterol mm-hmm. particles. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. You heard it here from Dr. Supavong. Um, she is a superwoman, mama of three and a family medicine doc here in Fort Worth. And so if you're looking for an excellent primary care physician, as so many ask me for referrals on the regular, um, you can find her at one-to-one MD. Are you, do you have any social channels where you're doing any medical thing or is it just all personal? 
It's all personal. Okay. <laughs> so that's okay. okay. So you can find her at her office on her website. <laughs> yeah. One to one MD.net uh, is the website. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I, I should get into social media, but it's another one of those stress factors that I don't have time for right now. Right. Um, you have a six so. month old. It's fine. It's fine. Yes. All right. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I know it will be very helpful to uh, my community. So thank you so much for joining me today. Until next week, be well. Thank you. Bye. All right, Sky community. Thank you for listening to another episode. This episode was sponsored by Sky Women's Health. As a reminder, we're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and we help relieve back pain and pelvic pain in pregnancy and beyond. If you are pregnant and having pain and you feel like you have no reliable way to relieve it, look us up at skywomenshealth.com request an appointment and we'll call to get you scheduled. As a board certified OB-GYN with a neuromusculoskeletal medicine fellowship, I help you realign with hands-on drug-free treatment and relieve pain on the spot without medication. We'll help you maintain these results through your pregnancy and postpartum period. Every pregnant person deserves this and we are so excited to serve you. You can find us on our website as mentioned or on social at Sky Women's Health or you can call the office at 817-915-9803. That's it for today. Until next week, be well.